Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. There have always been in history two tendencies among any groups of people. So you could think of groups that we call nations, but you could shrink it down to political groups, churches, individuals, families, groups of people. Two tendencies that have always been there. On the one hand, every group of people tends to downplay its own problems. Everybody does it. Maybe the more exaggerated forms of this we saw in World War II, when by common consent, Hitler was an evil man doing an evil thing. But you know, Hitler didn't see it that way. He had justifications for what he was doing. Living space and other arguments. So he believed that what he was doing in mass murder, genocide, was not so bad. He and the German people of that day, along with their allies, downplayed their own wrong. We all do that, every last one of us. On the other hand, there's a second tendency found everywhere. And it is, while we downplay our own wrongs, we upplay, if that's a word, the wrongs of others. So while we may be at peace with our own problems, if we see even the slightest of problems, the smallest crack in the structure of someone else out there, especially our enemies, especially those we don't like, we are quick to call it out, very quick, to cry injustice concerning them over there. And these two tendencies, when you put them together, that we downplay our own fault in matters and that we emphasize the fault of others, when you put them together and mix them, you know what you get? Wars. You get wars. That's how every war works and every lesser conflict than a war. Because we look at ourselves and we say, well, there's some problems, but they're not so bad. They're the problem over there. And if we could just, just wars of aggression in history, if we could just exert our will over them, our pure and holy will, over that problematic group of people over there, there would be peace on earth. But of course, in wars of aggression or any wars, once that exertion has happened, they take over, they realize, oh, they were a problem too. <laughs> You've just extended your own problem. Minimizing our fault, maximizing the faults of others, leads all of us to basically always feel that the main fight in life, even if you bring it down from nations, just to yourself, the main fight, the main problems in this world, in your life, are them over there. But I want to tell you a mystery this morning. That's not the real fight. And I don't care who them over there is. Now, there might be something to deal with over there, sure. That's not the real fight. That's not the main conflict of your life, making sure you win out over them over there. It's not. When Jesus stood on that famous mount and gave his sermon on the mount, he started by pointing out these two tendencies in us. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Because your neighbors on your team, we're in this together and we're the good guys. But your enemy over there, hate them. They're the problem. But you remember how Jesus turned the whole world on its head when he said, but I say to you, them over there, yeah, them over there, hate them, kill them, fight them, them over there, love them. Well, how's that going to fix the problem? They're the problem. How's loving them going to fix the problem? Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Isn't the real fight out there with them? Are you telling me we're supposed to just let them, the problem, come in here and what, slap us on the right cheek? You know the answer to that. But I don't want you to think that Jesus came to start a hippie commune. No offense to hippies out there. Jesus did not come to get rid of all conflict or to say there is no conflict or to put us into some utopia that denies conflict. Instead, Jesus just wanted us to really redirect the swords, not sheath them. There they are facing our enemies, them over there the problem. And he calls on us to redirect them because on that same Sermon on the Mount, he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. There is a conflict, a war that you are in right now. It is the real battle. It is the real fight. You might be distracted by what you think is the real fight with someone else. And Jesus says, no, love your enemies. That's not the real fight. The real fight is you. It is you against you within your own self. It's your right hand causing you to sin. It's that part of you, the flesh, the remaining corruption that is in there leading you to sin. You follow it. That's the fight. You got to kill that. This case, he says, in the extreme of cutting off your hand. The real fight is not with your boss. It's not with your spouse. It's not with your coworkers. It's not with others in the church or outside of the church. It's not with government. It's not with an opposing political party. There may be conflicts there, but that is all child's play compared to the real fight, which is your flesh against the spirit who indwells you. And that's what we see as we continue this study in Galatians. That's what Paul will be talking about today and for the next several weeks. So look at this with me. Galatians 5, we're starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these, Spirit and flesh, are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You might remember from last week that Paul had just been talking about infighting in the Galatian church. If you just look up at verse 15 there, 
But if you bite and devour one another like wild animals, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. They were, it seems, misusing the freedom they had as Christians, free from the law, free from condemnation. They were using their freedom to freely fight with each other, and that was not the point. Your freedom is so that you can freely serve one another, and Paul corrected that last week. So there is conflict happening within this body of believers, and so he starts with this contrast, but I say, they were giving full vent to their flesh, fighting each other. He says, but I say, as you fight each other thinking they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem, but I say, you're the problem. It's your own flesh. And if you want to deal with that, as we'll see in our text, you have to walk by the Spirit. Our fight, which we can get so easily distracted from, is not even against, as in recent years it has sometimes felt, an ever-encroaching, worsening world and culture. That is a fight. It's not the main fight. The one fight that needs to concern you the most, it is the primary battle. It is your battle with the flesh. Flesh is the enemy. Your neighbor's not the enemy. Government's not the enemy. No, no, no. Your flesh is the enemy. This is the battle you have to win. If you lose every other battle in life, do not lose this battle. It is the battle against the flesh, which takes place within every single one of us who are believers. It is, as he says in this text, the Spirit of God fighting against the flesh, our remaining sin, as we'll see. And this is one that you can't just stand by and watch happen and hope for the best outcome. No, it's not like that. It's happening inside you. You are involved. You are a participant. There's no escaping this battle as a Christian, and you have to win this battle. So what we're going to look at today, in keeping with this text, is on the one hand just the warfare itself that's taking place to make sure that is clear in our minds. And then lastly, we want to turn to the biblical strategy for how to win that war that is taking place in each of us. So let's begin with the war itself. And this is in verse 17 laid out pretty clearly. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see immediately that there are two parties involved, as in any conflict. Two parties are involved fighting. One is described as the flesh, and the other as the spirit. Now, before we even define what we mean by flesh and spirit in this passage, I do want to remind you of this one oddity of this kind of conflict. It's different than any kind of conflict in the world. You know that in times of war, there are many times where combat becomes man-on-man, close combat, if you will. In time past, you would attach bayonets if you knew you were going to be in close combat. You were going to see the enemy, not at a distance like you usually do, but they were going to be right up on you, right around the corner. So that is close combat. But that was not always happening in war. There was also fighting at a distance, especially ever since the invention of guns. But it's not like that in this kind of combat. 
In the combat that you're involved in right now as a Christian, it's all close combat. There's no fighting at a distance. It is within yourself, there is the flesh, always there, always present, never leaving, always right there within your very self, and at the same time, always the spirit in your very same self, flesh, Spirit. There are no bunkers to hide behind. They don't have a ceasefire and armistice. They don't go stand in their separate sides. They are always right there, immediately next to each other. It's an oddity of this conflict that you are engaged in. But it is a reminder that there will be no peace, therefore. You cannot do the things you want to do. There will be no ceasefire. I know that you go down to Florida, you vacation, you're laying on the beach. It doesn't look like a massive conflict is taking place. You're resting. I get it. But at that very moment, spirit and flesh are in close combat. Always. And it is a combat to the death. They don't take breaks. They are in close combat. It's something to keep in our mind. This is why there cannot be a moment's absolute peace in this world for any of us. There is peace. Jesus leaves us a peace, not as the world gives, but is not an absolute peace, and it will not be until we enter the life to come, because the spirit and the flesh are in close combat within you right now. Let's now step back and define our terms here. We say flesh, we say spirit in this passage, but what exactly is meant? And let's begin with flesh. Literally, the word for flesh in this passage refers to your body. Literally, that's what it means. It means your body. And often in the New Testament, your body is related to the sins that you deal with. There is a connection clearly in the New Testament between sins and the body. And likely the reason for this is because our body does play a role in our sin. Our body's not ultimately responsible for our sin, but do this simple experiment when you are very tired, is it easier to sin or harder to sin? So your body has some sway. It can make it easier or harder to sin. Certain appetites are based in our physical bodies, and we are tempted to sin, Satan using those physical appetites to lure us away. So for whatever the reasons, your physical body has some relationship to you dealing with sin. You can see this clearly if you look, for example, verses 19 to 21 is that list of works of the flesh. This is what flesh does, and we'll get to this in a later week. But notice some of these sins clearly are related to our bodies, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, even fits of anger, or there at the end, drunkenness, orgies. But I want you to know that although flesh literally refers to your body, Paul is using it in a different way here. Flesh in this passage doesn't just mean your body, because there are several of the sins in this list that are not absolutely dependent on your physical body. Look at this, envy. We know that envy does not need a physical body to operate in a conscious being. How? Satan. Satan, who is an angel fallen angel whom we call a demon, Satan experienced envy and attempted a heavenly coup without a physical body like ours. 
Satan would not have been tempted to sexual immorality so far as we can tell. He was an angel, didn't have a body. Or to drunkenness, probably not. But envy, more than half the list that has to do with division, he led a third of the angels to fall. So not every sin depends on our physical body, even though there's a relationship between them. So I want you to know when Paul is using the word flesh, that though the word literally means your body, that's not exactly the way that Paul is using it, either here or in Romans. Flesh, clearly from the list given in verses 19 to 21, simply refers to your remaining sinfulness. It is that part of you that is sinful. Now, there's a sense in which every part of you is sinful. Sorry if you didn't know that. But we call that in theology total depravity. It means that since the time of the fall, every part of us, mind, will, emotions, is affected by sin. But not totally, praise God. You are not completely corrupted 100% or life would be much worse than it is. So if there was a way to take those parts of you affected by sin, to take the sinfulness within you, even as a Christian, and separate it out into a pile and put it right here, that is what Paul is calling flesh. And of course, it's the thing that is or leads to this whole list, sexual immorality, it's in that pile, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, all of it in that pile. That is flesh. Maybe an easy way to think of this if you're familiar with the famous story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, who's an upstanding good citizen and a scientist, comes up with a way to make this serum that when he drinks it, it turns him into Mr. Hyde, who is a hideous, evil man who murders and commits all kinds of vice. And really what Dr. Jekyll has accomplished is he separated himself out from the good Dr. Jekyll and that evil part of him, all his vice put together, that is Mr. Hyde. Your Mr. Hyde is your flesh. It is all the sinfulness that is within you. That is your flesh. It's an imperfect comparison, but that is the idea. Now, on the other hand, that's one party in the conflict, your remaining sinfulness as a Christian, the flesh. The second party in this war that's going on right now, Paul calls the Spirit. Now, there's a sense in which, if you will bear with me, this kind of conflict makes perfect sense and made good sense to the original hearers, those who were in Galatia, who lived in a, what we call a Greco-Roman context. Greek, taken over by the Romans, there was a blending of those cultures and ways of thinking, and that's the context of the ancient world. That Greco-Roman way of thought tended to pit flesh against spirit already. Actually, the old philosopher, whom if you know no other philosophers, you perhaps at least know Plato, not the toy, but Plato, he was an ancient Greek philosopher, shaped the way Greco-Roman thought went. And largely by his influence, people tended to think flesh 
or physical or body is bad. It's innately bad because look at all the bad things it makes you do. But there is spirit. That part of you that is not physical, that immaterial part of you. And it is good. And the way the Romans and the Greeks tended to think was that the good spirit was trapped in the bad body. So when Paul said, you have a conflict within yourself, it's your flesh, your physical part, your body that's fighting with the spirit, Greco-Roman thought would have gone, of course, of course. Those are in conflict with each other. They're opposite each other. But here again, we have to be careful because Paul is not just copying the way his culture was using those terms. Just like with flesh, he didn't just mean your physical part. He didn't just mean your body. He meant your sinful part, wherever it resides in you. Your sin, that's your flesh. So when it comes to spirit, he didn't just mean that part of you that is not body or that immaterial part. In the original Greek that this was written in at first, there were not capital letters to tell you whether spirit meant smallest spirit as a concept, immaterial part, or biggest spirit, the Holy Spirit. But your translation is almost certainly right to put a biggest spirit there in translating it. Paul is not just talking about like our immaterial part that the Greeks would shake their head at. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And how do you know that? From the context of the verse, if you look in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, clearly the Holy Spirit. And so in our passage too, it's not just your body fighting your immaterial soul, no. It is your sinful part all throughout you, that's your flesh, and it is fighting what? The Holy Spirit of God Himself, whom you know lives within you as a Christian. Paul told the Romans, you are not in the flesh, you don't live characterized by this sinful part, but you are in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. That means that every last one of you who truly knows Christ the Holy Spirit has to dwell within you. We are a temple of the Spirit, he says to the Corinthians. So the Spirit dwells within us, but the Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And when He takes up residence within you, what He finds is not everything is holy in you just yet. And He will not tolerate that. So there begins a conflict. That's the idea of spirit in our text. It's the Holy Spirit. These are the two parties who are fighting within your very soul this exact moment, flesh, spirit. Now that we see and have defined these parties, let's just consider the opposition, the fighting that's going on, the war itself that's happening. He says here, for the desires of the flesh, all the sinful things you want to do, are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit. Everything the Holy Spirit wants you to do and wants to do in you, all that is good and wholesome, those desires are against the flesh, 
For these, that is, the sinful part in you and the Holy Spirit in you, are opposed to each other. You know that many animals are territorial. We've had raccoons. For as long as we've been married, we've had raccoons all the time eating our trash. They are territorial, but maybe a better example of a territorial anim animal would be a lion that you see on National Geographic or what have you. And that lion, the male lion, he marks out his territory. We won't describe it, but he marks it out to make sure that other people, other lions, male lions are aware, this is my territory. He is the alpha male. If another strong male lion appears in his territory, they will not be friends. What will happen? They will fight even to the death because that is that lion's territory. You cannot have two of these alpha male lions in the same territory together as buds hanging out watching TV. It's not going to happen. There's going to be a conflict immediately. Why? Just the proximity of the two together. That lion stays over there, that's fine. You go stay over there in your territory. But it's when that guy comes in here, just by their proximity, a conflict is inevitable. And that is precisely what is happening within your own soul this morning. Before you knew Christ, you had that lion of the flesh guarding the territory of your soul. And you may have felt, for a while at least, a certain inner peace, maybe more than you sometimes feel even now. You were full of corruptions, full of the flesh and everything the flesh wants to do. You loved yourself. You loved your sin. But there was no one to challenge that. So there was a relative peace in the nation of your soul, so to speak. The only person who ever stood up in a town council to object was your poor little conscience. And he always got booed down, so he sat back down. But then what happened? You trusted in Christ, and just as Christ promised, He sent the promise of His Father, the Helper, the Holy Spirit to be with you always. The moment you believed in Christ, that Spirit had been sent into your heart and had come into proximity in the territory of the flesh. Now, the beauty of this is that it's not an equal fight. It's not an equal fight. And we're going to see that in this passage, actually, because if you look down at verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, when you trust in Him, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, thankfully, your flesh, when you trust in Christ, it used to be strong. It ruled over your whole life. But the moment you trust in Christ, it gets a mortal wound. It's dying. It's crucified. Or we might say it's being crucified. Because you know the flesh is not dead yet. There is still flesh there. But he's losing. He's wounded. He's on his way out. He's the old regime. But he's still there. But once this new alpha male has come in, so to speak, if we can say that with reverence. Once the Holy Spirit has appeared in proximity in the same territory of your very soul. You have to see that conflict is inevitable. The Holy Spirit is not going to give up. He's not going to give up on you, no matter how much flesh He finds in you. And the flesh, though now a wounded animal in a corner, He's not going to give up. And so a lifelong conflict begins the moment you become a Christian. Now, this is an invisible conflict we're talking about here. It's so much easier for us to see a, 
a physical battle taking place. But that's why Paul has to say the weapons of our warfare are not physical. That's easy to see. We're talking about tearing down strongholds. We're talking about an invisible conflict that's just as real, if not more real, than the sort of wars you see in the world and on the news. This war might not be visible to your eyes, this conflict happening inside you, but it is obvious. That's what Paul is going to say later. The works of the flesh are obvious. But even in our passage in verse 17, it's not like you don't already know this war is happening. You know it. You live it. Look at verse 17 at the very end. These are in conflict with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Oh, isn't that the good and the bad of the Christian life right there? When you are walking by the Spirit, when you're having a a healthy season of your walk with Christ, and you are finding love and joy and peace, patience with others, and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, growing in your soul and moving forward, good relationships, you're loving, you're forgiving, you're bearing with people. The flesh will not put up with that. Will not put up with that. You can expect opposition. It's not just going to be like that forever. Ah, oh, wonderful time. It's going to get hard. So you want, you want to do good. You're not always going to do it. Isn't that terrible? That's the worst. But that's because this conflict is happening. You're going to do a lot of good, and there's going to be times where you want to do good, and uprises the flesh. I thought you were dead. Uprises the flesh, knocks you on your back, and you fail. Outburst of anger. I thought I was doing so well with my kids. Where did this outburst of anger come from? The good you want to do, you can't always do because the flesh is there. But it works the other way too. When you are just having a lousy time, and you are, it's your own culpability here, surrendering to the flesh, you're blowing up on everyone, you're having a bad season, bad day, bad season, hopefully short, bad season, you're sinning, you got addicted to some sin from your old life, it's not going to be as easy as it was when you were lost. You know that. In comes the conviction. And now you're miserable because you used to enjoy doing this sin without a problem. Conscience sits down, you do what you want, but it's not like that anymore. If you are trying to walk by the flesh, do sinful things that you want to do, uh-uh. Uprises the spirit, so you can't do that like you used to. You cannot do the things you want to do. That's the joy and frustration of the Christian life. Romans 7 puts this so perfectly when Paul says, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Which is why Peter tells you, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's your experience as a Christian. The two are fighting. You're not always doing exactly right. You're not always doing exactly wrong. There is a massive conflict happening. So though the conflict's invisible, you see the evidence of it in your own wrestlings within yourself. So that is the warfare itself in this passage. Hopefully we are more aware that that is going on. But now we need a strategy. We can't just know that this is happening. We have to win this fight. Thankfully, in this passage, we get the outline of the only solid, enduring Christian strategy 
against the flesh. Let's look at this. Verses 16 and 18 contain this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, before we go in depth on this strategy for fighting and winning this war, I want you to notice that if you employ this strategy, you will have a double victory over both of the things that have most concerned Paul in this entire letter for the Galatians. You remember last week, Paul took kind of a detour and focused on what we call the licentiousness of the Galatians, that they were using their freedom. We're not guilty. We're going to heaven. Using their freedom for the flesh. Do what you want, flesh. Doesn't matter. We're going to heaven. And he had to fight against that and say, that's not why you're free. But notice in our passage, if you employ the tactic he gives, walk by the Spirit, as we'll see in a second, notice what the consequence is in verse 16. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we have to know what it means to walk by the Spirit, but you can know if you do it, you're going to be putting a whooping on the flesh here. You're going to be doing very well against the flesh, and you're not going to fall into the error of licentiousness, of living a loose Christian life. It won't happen if you walk by the Spirit. Sounds pretty good. But what's amazing is when you get to verse 18, he throws something in you weren't expecting. At least I wasn't expecting it. But it is the other major problem that's been predominant throughout this entire letter. This hasn't been a letter mainly against the licentiousness of the Galatians. This has been a letter mainly against what? The legalism on the opposite end of the spectrum where the Judaizers are saying, here's the list of Jewish rules. Keep these. It's the only way to be saved. And this whole letter, Paul has been saying, that's a lie. That's legalism. Getting right with God by keeping a list of rules? No, 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 no. It's faith in Christ alone. That's been the whole letter. But notice in this passage, if you're led by the Spirit in verse 18, what happens? You are not under the law. Where did that come from? I think that's Paul's way of saying, if you employ this one strategy of walking by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit, you kill two birds with one stone. You will not, on the one hand, gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not be licentious. And on the other hand, you will not be a legalist. Spiritual life, life in the Spirit, is opposite. Remember those two pillars from way back when? Listing out various things. Spirit is opposite keeping the law for righteousness. So you will have a double victory over legalism, over licentiousness. This is the strategy for fighting sin, for fighting the flesh, for winning in this war against the flesh that although is ongoing in this life, we can win progressively over the flesh. And this is the way we do it. And it's put simply here. He doesn't go into detail. Actually, in the next few weeks, we'll go into more detail. But just in its outline, look verse 16. It's walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit. Those are about the same thing. If you are walking, and that is just a metaphor that refers to you living your life, you're walking around, living your life. 
If you are living your life walking the way the Spirit wants you to be walking, with His guidance and power, then you could also say He's leading you. It's the same thing. You're being led by the Spirit. You're walking by the... Actually, when we go down a little ways into verse 25, He'll give you two more pictures of this exact same thing. He says, if we live by the Spirit, live your life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Walk by, led by, live by, keep in step with the Spirit. It's all very much the same thing here. The strategy, you got to work this out, but let me give you the core of it, for you to win against the flesh is for you to rely upon actively the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to know this is not a common way to overcome bad habits. I found an article in Time Magazine, five science-approved ways to break a bad habit. Sink your stress levels. Know your cues. Replace a bad habit with a good one. Have a better reason for quitting. And set better goals. Now, those are good. And actually, I could find some biblical backing in some sense for all of those. So those are just common wisdom. Not bad. But those are missing something. Something very significant. Actually, the most significant thing of all. There's no Holy Spirit here. Even within the church, there's a temptation to have strategies for fighting our sin that don't involve the Holy Spirit. That is like putting together this massive machine, this great equipment that's going to do wonderful things, wow, with no power source, no battery, no gasoline, can't plug it in. It just is going to sit there. It's going to look pretty. It's going to look impressive. You may have thought it out real well, but your strategy to fight your sin without the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work. The only thing you can do at very best is like cleaning grease without soap. You just smudge it around. That's all you can do with your sin without the Holy Spirit. You can trade sins. I'm not going to sin that way now because I'm afraid of what people will think. You've traded a sin for a sin. But if you want to actually win against the flesh, actually see its strength lessen in your life, it has to be by the power of the Spirit. And doesn't that make sense? Because who's fighting inside you? The Spirit. He's got to be the one to win. So he has to be involved in our overcoming sin. If you don't overcome your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have not overcome your sin. This tells us that we have to focus our attention upon the Spirit. Now, there are many, even among Christians, who've agreed entirely with this point, but have gone astray just here. When we hear, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, there, were, there have been movements of Christians who have said what the key then is, is just stop resisting the Holy Spirit. You just need to surrender yourself to the Spirit. And if you really surrender yourself to the Spirit's guidance and power, you won't even have to try. All this inner conflict and toil and turmoil will go away. Jesus will calm the storm, and you'll just be kind of pulled along by the Spirit. It will all become easy. We call these higher life movements, and there's been a various, Keswick was one of them. There's been so many varieties of them through the years, and I sympathize with those who feel like if we just surrender to the Spirit and just surrender to God, we'll get to that next, that higher life, that next level that we're yearning for in personal holiness, and we won't have to struggle so much like we are now. It's not true. 
I wish I could tell you it was true. It's not true. You know how I know it's not true? The Bible. Look, we're looking at it right here. There's a conflict taking place. At any point, do the desires of the flesh and of the spirit stop opposing each other within you? No, they do not. It is an ongoing conflict. So when we say in this passage, walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, we are not talking about something passive. We're not saying if you just, there, surrender is probably involved. You probably do need to surrender some significant parts of your life to the Spirit. But that's not all we're talking about here. It's not just you praying and believing hard enough and then it all becomes easy. It's never going to all become easy. Even that picture of walking is an active picture. You have to walk. If you don't try to do anything, you won't walk. Walking is an activity. But the best defense of what I'm arguing right now is actually found in Romans 8, verse 13, which says the same thing as this, but in this way, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice, it is by the Spirit, because that's the secret to winning over the flesh. But it's you, and it's you doing what? Keeping your sword unsheathed and putting to death the deeds of the body. Put to death. You know what kind of language that is? The old Puritans called it mortification. But putting to death, that is warfare language. You don't put people to death in peacetime. You put to death because there is a war. There is a conflict happening. You walking by the Spirit includes you with great effort and exertion, putting to death what remains in you of sin. It takes activity. It takes you thinking, strategizing, but all in reliance on the Holy Spirit. And as we come to a close, you might say, well, practically, how do I rely on the... I thought I was relying on the Holy Spirit. The sin's still here. How do I rely on the Holy Spirit? Let me just point you in this direction to get you started. One of the most significant things the Spirit has done for us to help us, you want to rely on Him? He has inspired the Scriptures. Don't try to fight your sin without the Bible. Jesus didn't. He didn't have any sin, but he had temptation, and there in the wilderness, tempted three times by the devil himself. Each time, Jesus quoted Scripture. He said, I don't have a good memory. Well, you better figure it out. Keep your Bible close to you or something, because when temptation comes, if the Bible is not renewing your thought, you will lose. You just will lose. So any way that you can involve Scripture, whether that's Scripture memory or study of the Bible or write down one takeaway from your quiet time on a note card and keep it with you or put Scripture on your mirror, put Scripture where you're tempted, whatever it is, that is a reliance on the Holy Spirit who has given you the Scriptures. So don't fight without any protection here. Put on the Scriptures to protect you. But also, you know that the Bible becomes to us empty and vague and fuzzy in time of temptation. You need not only the words of the Bible, but you need the second great work the Spirit does in us of illumination. That is when we are actively calling upon the Spirit to help us to understand and believe, to take hold by faith what the Scriptures say. There is that sin that you've struggled with so long, and you love that sin. Let's be honest, you love that sin. And that sin loves you, and you try to put it away, but it's still there in the flesh, and it comes along and says, hey, 
You're bored, you're stressed at work, you're having a hard time. I can make that a lot better for you. Ooh, and you are so tempted to go in that direction. What's going to stop you? There you are looking at the sin. You know it's pleasurable. You know it's enjoyable. You've experienced it before. You know it'll provide some temporary relief. And that's, of course, the arguments that that sin is using to lure you to it. You think, I could say no, but you look over this way at no, and it's a dry, barren wasteland of misery. That's your alternative. Until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you believe what the Bible says about this situation. And then all of a sudden, this beautiful sin is an aged, decrepit, grotesque thing calling you down the steps to death. And you see that go, oh, I didn't know that's what you were on. Oh, this better lighting now or something. I don't want to do that. And you look over at the desert and it's blossoming and it's beautiful and there's your friends and it's a happy time. And there's joys everlasting. But that takes faith. It's when you look at the scriptures and what it says about your reality and your situation and you don't believe your feelings about it, but you, by the Spirit's work in you, take hold those truths. So I'm going to live by faith in these truths. There's so much more we could say in walking by the Spirit, but, and we will in the next several weeks, but that is the secret, that is the mystery, that is the heart of it all. You have to, you can win against your flesh by the Holy Spirit, by His power and by His guidance. And may God give us all this solid and unmovable conviction that when you leave here today to go get lunch, you're in a war. It's not a war against them out there. It is a war against you and what is in here. But you can succeed in that conflict, even today, by relying upon the power of the Spirit.